0: Welcome to another episode of the Solana podcast. I am Austin Federa, sitting in for Anatolia again this week. Today we've got a pretty special episode. I think I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, I think it's been a long time coming with a few false starts. Today we have uh, kind of Korea, president of Jump Crypto, or do we just say Jump at this point? Uh, yeah, Jump Crypto is good. <laughs> president yeah. of Jump Crypto, which maybe this time last year, very few people knew existed. Very few people knew what you guys were doing, what you were building, what your role in the, in the ecosystem has been. So yeah, I guess let's just go ahead and jump right into it. What is Jump Crypto and how did it come about?
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on, Austin. So for context for the audience that aren't very familiar with us, Jump is historically a prop trading firm founded over 20 years ago in the pits at the CME. Today, one of the largest quantitative trading firms in the world. And we started a crypto division over seven years ago. It started as an intern project at the University of Illinois, where we were running a miner in a closet and building some trading infrastructure. And today, we've got over 150 people on the crypto team doing a lot of different things. So the way I like to describe our business is uh, splitting it into three primary pillars. One is prop trading, which is exactly what we do on the other side of the house. We build trading intelligence and we scale it. The second piece is building, and you know that's that's the piece that. I hope we'll get to talk a lot more about on this call and it's you know closest to my heart and closest to the heart of the team. And that's in building pieces of infrastructure, really streets and sanitation for the space. And a couple of the marquee projects that we've really focused a lot of our efforts on have been uh, Wormhole and Pith. And of course, along the journey, we've aligned ourselves with a lot of the major ecosystems in the place, including Solana, Terra, and, uh, and a whole number of others in building a lot of different things across across those platforms. The third bucket is venture. I, I like to call ourselves accidental VCs in that we found opportunities to add value or we had requests come in to work with partners over the last six years in various different capacities. And we found that uh, we could be meaningful in those contexts and you know work with people that were solving problems for us. And that has now grown into the venture division that's deploying across the space.
0: So I want to get into a lot of the work that Jump is doing as core code contributors and and supporters of projects in the ecosystem. But I kind of want to start a little bit with that with that journey, right? I, I would say that the transition from prop trading equities and commodities to prop trading crypto, that feels pretty organic. But and there's a number of firms in the space that have also Made that transition, albeit you guys seem to have made it uh, sooner than a lot of other firms in the industry. What was that process like of going from deciding that you wanted to add crypto to actually operationalizing that, and then we'll get into some of the the journey to actually becoming builders?
1: The, the project started as an intern project at this thing called Jump Labs. That was a research lab at the University of Illinois, and it was meant to work on cool stuff for the university, on working on fun problems. So, alongside the crypto stuff we were doing when I was an intern. There was a VR project working with professors at the university to abstract away trading screens. And there was work on some interesting machine learning and networking problems. And the group has grown out of that and, of course, matured heavily since, but we've definitely strongly retained that ethos. Now, I want to caveat this by saying we definitely didn't have a prescience in being infrastructure builders when we started the project in the lab that many years ago. It's been a very organic and natural process for us. And it's, it's hard to make the instant leap from prop trading to, to what we're doing today, but it's easy to reason through the steps along the way. So as one of the earliest large trading firms in the space, we had a lot of requests from institutional liquidity exchanges, uh, OTC platforms, and importantly, projects that were looking to solve trading and liquidity-related problems. And those conversations gave way to us exploring a lot of DeFi projects and a lot of L1 platform projects that shared... A lot of the problems they were thinking through on complex financial system design or programming in resource-constrained environments, which are very natural and germane to a quantitative trading firm. And those conversations led to jamming about fun ideas, to implementing governance proposals, to maybe starting to write a little bit of code in them, and then all the way into committing over 50, 70 engineers that we have today in building through the space. And, And that process involves a few different steps. One, it involves the willingness for the institution at large to be mentally long the space. It requires a recognition and frankly, a little bit of a taste of the upside. It requires flexibility, which of course, you know, quant trading firms just generally naturally just have to have. And then everything else you kind of just learn along the way, right? So we've done a lot of things wrong. <laughs> uh, we've stumbled over ourselves a hundred times, but you've got to keep taking, you know, shots on asymmetric upside and Oh, with with all the resources that we've had at the firm, I think we've been able to make some good ones.
0: So so going back to last year, Jump Crypto had sort of a moment where it decided it wanted to make itself public. You wrote a blog post that was laying out—I wouldn't quite call it a thesis—but laying out an idea of how you view the space and the role that you know something like Jump could play within it. One of the things I was struck by going back and rereading this is your level of optimism in this post. Right, which is something that you don't see from many financial trading firms. You see them seeing opportunities to make lots of money. You see them making lots of money. They're very profitable endeavors, but you usually don't see optimism contained within it. Where'd that come from? <laughs> That's a pretty good question. So corn firms today are basically research and development firms. Right, so
1: the people that build trading systems, that build the intelligence behind trading systems are generally of quantitative background. They generally have PhDs in either statistics, machine learning, physics, those kinds of endeavors. And the people building the platforms are low latency, high performance systems engineers that do different optimizations across every level of the stack to build robust, scalable, fast infrastructure. The environment down in the lab, you know, five years ago, was about exploring this space. It was like, what does this space mean? Right, and uh, it wasn't about okay, how are we going to make X billion dollars? Kind of getting into this endeavor, it was it was it was about exploring it, and I think it attracted that kind of people and it attracted that kind of environment. And the leadership that stayed since then has has kind of embodied that. And you know, just personally, I am an optimist. I'm a I'm, I'm a raging optimist. You know, I'm, I, be, I believe in technology. I believe in the future. I believe in building towards something bigger and you know, thankfully, I think the firm has shared those ideas. And I hope I've been able to shape a lot of the culture and in, 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 in behaving in that fashion.
0: Where do you think that optimism in yourself comes from? There, there's a lot of things you could have gone into coming out of school. What about both something, an organization like Jump, which is, you know, undoubtedly a great a great place to go work. But you stay there for a while now. You've worked your way up. Like you're now in charge of the crypto division. Where does that sense of optimism in you come from? And, and what uh, what makes Jump the right place for that?
1: I I first looked at Jump because they had a cool internship program. And you know, that's <laughs> that's they, they they had they had a lab on site and they were working on really fun problems in a well-resourced environment. That just made it fun and attractive. And after I had the opportunity to intern there for eight to ten months, I kind of got a sense for, you know, the possibilities that existed and just the flexibility that the whole space had. And it was like, you know, you come in. You get to make a lot of bets, you get a lot of resources. And if you, make, if you make good bets, you get more resources and then you get more resources. This is the only place I've ever worked. I I think it would be rather unique to you know, have that kind of setup. And again, I, no, I I wouldn't say it was a pressured moment to come into jump and know that I would be able to build streets and sanitation for crypto. But I knew I would get to do a lot of really cool stuff, work on fun problems with smart people. And uh, where does optimism come from?
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you look at a space like this, it's been through boom and bust. Yeah. There's tons of amazing projects being built in the space that end up going nowhere. And especially from the vantage point of a trading firm, right? Like one of the 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 secret sauce of a trading firm is it can make money in an up market and can make money in a down market, right? And that is like that is the advantage of, of a professional trading operation versus you know a more a more passive trading operation. But again, like those are not usually characteristics that breed optimism. Those are usually characteristics that 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 bleed, uh, you know. Mar- margins, right? Where, where you're, you're you're optimizing 1%, 2%, 3% here so you can compound that over a year and it will make a marginal difference. But again, that's not usually an optimistic space. That's a very functional space to work in.
1: Yeah, uh, <laughs> it is. It is. And, and traditionally, I don't think it lends itself to naturally just exactly this. Trump culture has kind of always been a little bit unique. So Trump also has a number of other kind of divisions that work on Non-high-frequency trading stuff. Historically, you know, so since about 2011 or 2012, had a, a BBC arm called Jump Capital that invests in growing technologies in the space. You know, they've had some cool endeavors in in the biospace, working on automation there in healthcare. Um, and so the founders have generally been optimists. <laughs> they definitely believe in the future. They've been able to take shots at, at, at things that are going on, and even if it's not naturally germane to the trading business in and of itself. The culture itself lends itself to being able to do something like this, which is a really awesome combination of like, Knowing how to monetize, but then also knowing how to build. Yeah, it's 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 been an absolute pleasure to be able to soak in from that environment.
0: So let's look at the building for a bit. Um, I think it's a it's a pretty open secret at this point that you know, jump are core contributors to Wormhole and and Pith. You've been very heavily involved in that process. Take me back to some of the early days there, where where you're internal to Jump and you're you're saying like, hey. We need to do more than just trade and invest in this space. I think we can actually build. And especially you're talking about this from the perspective of like sanitation and roads and like the very base level infrastructure. Crypto has been around for a long time. I think most people coming into the space in that, in that time horizon wouldn't have necessarily looked at it and said like, oh, there's, there's very base level features that are missing from this ecosystem. What was that both discovery process like and then the process of convincing everyone internally that this was worth dedicating resources to? Yeah, the discovery process was was very
1: organic. Um, we had a lot of inbound from people looking to solve trading and liquidity problems because a lot of people in the space, even though we were quite kind of new of our trading presence, um, and as one of the early trading firms that really was trying to you know make bigger pushes in the space. When you when you get to like talk to awesome founders every day about all the problems that they have and get to build relationships with them. You start to uncover a lot more of the problem space that exists. Start to internalize a lot of it, and once you've got the opportunity to sit in that for a little bit, and you know, I'm sure you see this today. We're much later on than we were when we kind made a lot of those big switches, but there's still a lot of opportunity, right? When we were kind of ideating on the origins of Pith, the conversation we had was. Look, our our whole thesis at Jump Crypto is to, you know, be as long aligned with the space as possible, right? We're we're trying to get the maximum exposure we can on a space that we think is going to be explosive. And we're trying to ideate this ways via which we put that quote-unquote trade-on, right? The best way to put a long trade-on in a growing space and the best mode to value capture is value creation. There's definitely a lot of inefficiencies created by hypergrowth right? And there's room to capture those inefficiencies. But those are small in magnitude relative to the absolute value creation at play. And, you know, then, then there's a value creation capture kind of ratio that you think about there. So if you think about it in that lens, and you know that you want to be big contributors to the space and just aim to create a lot of value to book, uh, then you start thinking about what the opportunities are within your realm to be able to engage in that, in
0: that capacity. But at some point, there's a meeting where you have a boss who you report to and you have to go down and sit down in front of him or her and say, hey, I want to spend a lot of money to hire a lot of engineers to do something that's going to be totally public and totally open source at a firm that historically likes to stay out of the news.
1: It was a few meetings. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. So and it's kind of baby steps along the way or, or, or big steps along the way that compound into a, a complete shift and, and a big switch of that nature. We had this summit we call the August summit a few years ago. And, you know, we went down to an off-site location and we talked about what being in the space means for us and how we differentiate. And I remember we just showed up with like this, this these, these sheets that we went around and distributed to people. And we were like, this is the toolkit that we have. This is the opportunity set in the space. Right, And everyone kind of had their own, like, things going on, but that was, that was one of the approaches that i are that taken. And if we believe this is where the space is going, this is the opportunity set that we can tackle. And these are the levels that we have to pull, right? And then you socialize that and you... You know, you try to convince some people that there is there is opportunity to be had here, and you get buy-in to take a first little step, right? And once you get the buy-in to take a first little step, and you kind of really show the big merits of differentiation in a native space, you get the buy-in for the next step, and then suddenly it's the entire apple cart. You get the whole kitchen sink thrown behind you, and then you're kind of propelling to the spot that you want to be at, and that's that's the whole thesis of jump everywhere. We take bets with asymmetric upside, and we throw the kitchen sink at things that are working, and a lot of the stuff that we were doing that are working.
0: So, how is that journey for you personally, going from an intern involved in a few projects now to the jump crypto teams over a hundred at this point? Yeah, we've got over hundred and fifty now. Hard oh. to keep track. Of. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. From a leadership role and from your own perspective, like how has that transition been? What parts of it were easier for you? What parts were harder than you were anticipating? You know, scaling yourself is is often much harder than scaling a company.
1: Without a doubt, yeah. So I started in, in the team as an intern, like you pointed out, working on software problems. I came back to the team a year later in a formal full-time capacity working on quant problems, which was to do with predicting, you know, crypto markets, building alpha and kind of scaling that piece. And the early conversations with projects where we were sol- trying to solve liquidity problems was an area that I got really, really interested in. And I just kind of went about trying to build that a little bit further over time that led to a transition from engineering and quantitative work to more conversational business development work. Just having spent years across all those functions and like natively knowing how to live them has been the biggest tool that, you know, I've been able to build in the toolbox. Now that doesn't teach you how to manage a hundred people. That doesn't teach you how to like propagate culture. It doesn't teach you how to scale hiring strategy. It doesn't teach you how to rally the troops when when things are low. I definitely won't make a claim that I'm there are many close to a finished product. Rather than trying to be good at everything, good at every one thing, you know, I, I, we always try to be excellent at a few things, and then, and then by force just propel everything forward. I'd say the biggest lessons, some of the biggest lessons I've learned, the biggest mistakes we've made, definitely been in the shape of like trying to shove you know, square pegs in a round hole, where in, in a trading environment, it's like, the only people you have on your team are engineers and quants. They're just smart people that can solve any shape of technical problem you throw them at. When you move that towards sales and marketing and product and, and everything else, that all kind of falls apart. <laughs> and you need people that you know, are able to like, natively live within specific subdomains across those functions. And that's something that we've been trying to scale And So I spend basically all my time hiring and, and trying to, and trying to focus on making sure our zero to one projects have a lot of momentum, but yeah, it's, it's been an awesome journey. And of course I have like support from a company that's grown to a 1500 people as, as the largest contracting firm in the world. And so lots of guidance and, and help along
0: the way. Let's talk a little bit about that work you guys are doing and actually building. So if I understand correctly, the two projects that you are mostly core code contributors to is, is Pith and Wormhole. Is there anything else that you'd you'd put into that category of engagement
1: that's the highest level of engagement for sure we do a lot of things across the big ecosystems of course we can talk about all the work we're doing with Solana you know we're always trying to get deeper we built an NFT project on the Metaplex landscape after we had their investment as an intern project <laughs> that, was a, that was a real fun one we've been core contributors to some of the projects that are coming out on the Terra landscape today we've worked on a lot of the mechanism design that goes on on that one And and there's a few other projects, but the highest levels of engagement have definitely been with Wormhole and
0: Pith. So looking out over that landscape, Pith, high-frequency Oracle, but again, Oracle's They've existed for a long time. There's a number of name brand ones that there are, you know, got their start on the ETH ecosystem in the 2017 range. Lots of people have had ideas about oracles over the years. Some of them have worked. Some of them haven't. Similar to wormhole, bridges have existed for a long time. Bridges are actually the basis of how any L2 works, right? They're hardly new. Both of these are hardly new ideas, I would say. What about looking at the landscape gave you guys the confidence to say not only like There's a need for something different, but we can help build something different and better.
1: Again, just like 100% organic. In that August summit, we were looking at some of the biggest things we could do. And a big problem that everyone kind of kept voicing to us is that they don't have access to equities data. They don't have access to fast data so that they don't have to like have things like clawback mechanisms and all these different things so that LPs don't get wrecked on every turn, right? The fundamental thing with financial oracles is that they used to settle risk transfer, They used to set a price at which two parties exchange value. And if that price is latent or slow or not accurate, one side gets left holding the bag. Now, in DeFi, the way protocols are constructed, the the side that gets left holding the bag is either the LP that's contributing to the protocol or the protocol stakers or a key stakeholder in building that ecosystem. And the takers are able to take all that value. If you are going to build something that's going to house all of OTC, if you're building something like synthetics, for example, and your protocol stakers are taking the other side of every trade that happens on S Oil or SSNP, you need to make sure that that's the right price. Otherwise, it's just gonna get arped the way down to zero. When we were ideating on what the biggest ways we could contribute is, let's contribute our data. And the first idea wasn't let's start, let's go and figure out how we bring together a network of people to build an outcome. It was how do we contribute our data, right? And we browsed through the category of solutions. We had all the conversations we spoke to dozens of investors and builders in the space, and there wasn't an easy way to slot in high fidelity financial data into existing Oracle solutions. And so we spoke with some of the founding partners of the Pith program and came to consensus that there was an opportunity. here, And that led to the first step and, you know, we just kept
0: building since. So in your mind, what is it that Pith offers that other Oracle solutions don't offer?
1: So Pith is a very hyper-specialized tool for high-fidelity financial data, specifically financial data for settlement of risk transfer, right? If you think about the way the market data landscape looks today, um, it's different across asset classes, but there is a class of people that have access to high-fidelity streaming price data that they can legally distribute and make available to a, a protocol like Payth or like an Oracle program. So one, you need access to very fast financial data, which is hard to get, and even harder to have a legal right to distribute. You want to make sure that the people who are publishing the prices are the real owners of the data so that you can set incentives for the data to be accurate, right? If you are staking to the value of a third-party aggregator, the third-party aggregator has no skin in the game. So that, that, that's kind of one of the other kind of fundamental things that you have to think about. And third, you need to acknowledge the fact that a price is not absolute. Right, A price for Bitcoin has about 20 liquid trading venues that are distributed across the globe that can often be fractured, that can often have all kinds of different idiosyncrasies, and that being able to accurately determine the price on most relevant venues and build a dispersion is really important. So if you think about kind of all those things together, you want very fast access, you want a broad range of access, of independent sources, not reporting from the same source. You want very high liveness and uptime, of course, and you want kind of good legal clarity that that price can continue to be distributed because you don't want your application to suddenly get turned off when the regulator says what's going on, right? And those are the kind of key things that PITS has really focused on very heavily uh, to build that piece of infrastructure. And Solana was the perfect opportunity. Before Solana, there wasn't a way to create a high-fidelity, fast oracle. There just wasn't a need for it and there wasn't a platform for it, right? And so all those things just came together.
0: So one of the criticisms that you will hear about Pith is that because of its structured model here, where the people providing data are permissioned at this point and are also like firms that are professionalized trading operations themselves, that there is an inherent kind of conflict of interest in that system. With any system in blockchain, you have to assume everyone is trying to cheat, everyone is trying to extract the most value possible. How have you gone about setting up incentives to make sure that the users of Pith and the contributors to Pith are not at odds with one another?
1: Yeah, I think you made a totally fine point there in that we're building for Byzantine systems, right? And so that's the kind of incentive design you've got to keep in place. I'll, I'll frankly say, I think that claim is a little bit ludicrous for like a few different reasons. Once you peel back the onion just a little bit, and I'll talk through some of the reasons.
0: Let's why. peel back the onion.
1: So one, you've got to like, first understand that the amount of value that can be created in actually pulling something like Pit off successfully is dramatic, right? And the firms that are building this are now incentive aligned to make that happen. But two, this is an open source protocol. It is decentralized. And you can look at exactly what the inputs are, how they're being aggregated, and what the resultant price output is. And three, most importantly, there are about 50 financial firms that are submitting independent price data to this oracle to, this to, to construct final outputs. And these financial trading firms aren't friendly with each other. This is the very first time that a group of highly adversarial trading firms, banks, exchanges, and like OBC players across the entire space have come together and said, let's go build a piece of infrastructure. And one, I think that needs to be celebrated a lot. It's a huge win. But two, the trading firms, there over 50 global financial trading firms contributing their proprietary prices directly to Solana on the Pith program today. You've got to realize that these 50 comprise of between 60 to 80% of global asset class volumes at this point, given the network of participants that have aggregated around this, this, this protocol. When you are that big, of, of, of market share, that you're covering that that kind of that kind of breadth, the participants in the protocol themselves are on the other side of each other's trades, almost by definition, and so who's manipulating the price against you? Let's, let's let's kind of to start there. The system of incentives that's set up in the staking protocol, you can read to this on the Pith white paper, has some really you know intelligent aggregation algorithms that put all this data together, that that identify the quality of each of these independent data publishers, that then sets out a mechanism to aggressively punish providers that don't have good prices, right? And good prices can mean I published a malicious bad price. It can mean I have slow prices. It can mean I published, uh, I had a bug, it can mean anything. The incentive design mechanism is meant to reward data providers that are not honest but that have great data. And that's like a fundamental difference in how like system design is that. It's not, we're not, we're not a kind of rewarding agreement, we're rewarding prediction. And so you're rewarded for correctly predicting the price that would come up rather than for rewarding agreement between parties, which can can both have different kinds of models and can both work in different ways. But there is almost no possibility for one collision across these landscapes, given the composition of the people in the network. And the incentive structure, again, is obviously explicitly set up to discourage that. Third, all these forms are heavily, heavily regulated. You know, Jump's put about 20 years of its reputation and, and a giant, giant business behind kind of making a lot of this happen. And we're definitely incentive aligned to make this thing as successful as it can possibly be.
0: The Web2 world and the rise of fintech apps has largely taught people that organizations that claim to be on their side often aren't. There's very legitimate reasons from a market-making perspective that during the, the GameStock run-up and squeeze, users of Robinhood and other fintech applications, their trading was, was turned off. Now, there's a bunch of really good backroom reasons for why that might have happened. But the effect is what is what matters to the retail trader, which is that they were using a platform that they thought gave them equal access to a market. That platform did not provide them equal and neutral access to a market, I think when people look at something like Pith, you know, it it wouldn't be crazy to say that, like, well, the same incentives that made us think that Robinhood was on our side could also be applied to Pith. What is different about the Web3 space and the construction of something like Pith, in in your view, that makes that not something someone should worry about?
1: So Web3 is fundamentally a new means of resource coordination, and it facilitates that by one facilitating the export of trust. And the export of trust is actually one of the big reasons why the whole Robin Hood went on, right? They basically ran out of margin requirements in order to continue to clear trades on, on, on one side since it was so directional. And there is this massive web of intermediaries that set up all throughout traditional finance for the express purpose of establishing trust. That's the FCM, the DCM, the clearinghouse, all the other three letter acronyms. And all of them exist to make sure that when a match occurs on any platform, that it actually settles into a financial trade. In crypto, the match is the execution. And that's facilitated by the fact that you can export all the trust of executing a piece of code onto Solana, onto Ethereum, onto the blockchain itself. And that's unlocked this completely new means of resource coordination, which makes things like PITS possible. It means that you can explicitly lay out a system of incentives in a closed loop fashion. And regardless of who's uploading the code, or who's proposing designs or architecting any of this, everybody is independently participating according to the incentives laid out very plainly by the the program itself. And that means DRW and J Street don't have to trust jump when they decide to publish prices to PIT. That means they look at the program that's running on Solana that they can read. They look at Solana's trust model and decide that they they can or don't trust Solana as a platform and then contribute to the platform that then self-executes and lives on its own terms. And the fact that we can allow different kinds of state to compose in a trustless fashion is the entire revolution in Web3. That's, that's basically what the whole space has been building for the last 10 years. And and that's what makes PIF possible. You know, it just it just simply was not possible before.
0: So, so what does something like Jump or Jane Street or anyone who's a data contributor to PIF, what do they get out of it? What is their incentive, apart from any rewards that might be generated from contributing data, like how are they then going back and using this on-chain data in their own operations?
1: So there's a few elements. And so one is fundamentally a two-sided marketplace, right? It has data, data publishers and it has data consumers. And the other interesting thing like Uber did for taxi cabs where it created a marketplace where cars could now come online This created a marketplace where data that was once latent came online. Jump is publishing its own trades to the fifth network. That is, IP that it has the legal rights over has only just been a cost center so far and now has the opportunity to get monetized. And that's the same for all the trading firms that sit in the network. It's allowed people to turn cost centers into potential elements in the marketplace and that bootstraps the supply. The consumers of fifth data obviously are paying for this extremely curated highly robust set of data inputs that then get aggregated. And that creates kind of flows in one direction. And then like your regular two-sided marketplace that accrues value, right? So all the data publishers today in PIT have some sort of stake of asset interest in the thing succeeding. And there is a set of incentives that then rewards them for the correct participation going on with fees, rewards, all those kinds of things. And all that is like in gross detail laid out in the white paper, and we can go over some of that. but the real the, the off-chain applications and some of this stuff is also quite interesting, right? So if you look at kind of back-office systems around the world at firms like Jump, you don't need like microsecond level access to financial data. But like you need that for your trading engines because otherwise you're playing at a disadvantage relative to the field. But in order to make sure that your clearing prices have happened correctly in order to make charts, in order to do something like a trading view, in order to get on the Bloomberg terminal or to be on a ticker somewhere. All these applications are now easily facilitated by subscribing to something like Bit that's living on an open kind of blockchain area. And so a lot of the off-chain use cases are getting more and more interesting, I think, over time. The fundamental value is in creating the pricing source for on-chain data. And this is kind of like an awesome thing that just falls out of it.
0: That's a really interesting way of thinking about both the incentive alignments and the, the role that the data providers versus the data consumers play in the market. Are there any token plans for Pith?
1: Yes, there is a token plan for Pith. You can read all about it on the white paper, no comments on timing or anything of that at, at this point. And, you know, that's going to be a network and governance decision, but I'm sure in the near future.
0: So transitioning over to to Wormhole, which is the other project that uh, Jump is is heavily involved in as a, as a core contributor of the code. When people look at Wormhole, I think it's very easy to look at it and say asset bridge, multi-chain, cool, fundamental utility. The first thing I I noticed when when we were talking about this and looking through it is this whole component of allowing different smart contracts on different blockchains to communicate with each other. Can you talk a little bit? I think most people understand how asset bridging works. Can you talk a little bit about this whole com, this whole concept of message bridging?
1: Yeah, and and this also kind of goes back to you know your, your question on how do you decide there is an opportunity here when bridging is something that people have talked about for a while, right? So when we were kind of ideating with, with everybody else on the kind of the PITS team and, and, and the network on how PITS goes cross-chain, um, Hendrik and team were building Wormhole as the Solana Eats token bridge on, on the hackathon project, right? At, at Certus One. And I called Henrik and you know, I asked him, look, is there a way to generalize this thing so that we can get bit messages across? We have, you know, we're building this Oracle thing on the best, fast, scalable, censorship-resistant message bus we can, but we want to get it to all the other ones that operate on a slightly different resolution. And through the course of that conversation, we, got, we came to a conclusion that, Enabling generic message buses to allow this cross-chain composability in a much more high-dimensional fashion than just the token bridge board was a massive opportunity set that had to be filled. And so WOMO launched last August as a completely generic message bus. And what that means is that any piece of state that is created or lives on a blockchain can be encoded as a message that then gets communicated to any other blockchain environment. And so if you think about oracles, you think about a governance vote, right? Uniswap passes a governance vote on Ethereum, but Uniswap lives on a lot of different chains. The outcome of that governance vote has to, in a secure, reliable fashion, be communicated to all the other geographies that Uniswap lives on. That needs to be encoded as a message. And so Wormhole has outpost contracts on every chain that is deployed to, it's deployed to over eight chains today. The outpost contract just listens for a message that is sent to that contract, and the Womol network of guardians attests to what that, that arbitrary binary block. That block can then be picked up, relayed to any other blockchain environment, verified that it's coming attested from the Womol network, and then decoded to do anything arbitrary and interesting. And so generic message browsers have really exploded over the last year. We've seen so many awesome applications being built on it. And I think we're just kind of scratching the surface, right? There's a, there's a lot to do here.
0: When I think about messaging, I think about how a lot of the models right now for cross-chain communication of assets are a little tedious and maybe have more risk inherent to them than are, are necessarily required. A very centralized example, USDC, right? You can you can go to FTX and you can withdraw USDC as an ERC-20, as an SPL token, or across several different networks. And what's happening there largely is because the Mint authority to that is is centrally controlled, they're able to issue new, quote-unquote, new USDC, natively on each layer that usdc is is supported on do you see the capability of developers using something like wormhole to make that that possible for fully decentralized both stable coins and just asset tokens
1: Not only possible but already widely adopted in the wormhole x asset framework right so there's over over four and a half billion ish of assets in the token bridge uh, today and the old token bridge kind of has meant a lot of different things to people at different points in time. Right. The old token bridges were like bi-directional, state-sponsored bridges that sovereign ecosystems would run to communicate with Ethereum to get liquidity in as soon as possible. And if then if you send that across a different bridge, then you would have like a double wrap and triple wrap implementation and just an absolute UX nightmare. When you use something like Womhole's X asset framework, you retain complete path independence as you move assets across the ecosystem. So once you registered as an X asset, let's take USD as an example, there's a couple billion dollars of USD on the bridge today. It flows throughout the ecosystem using Wormhole as rails on the back end. Terra Bridge Money you know, uses Wormhole on the back end to like expose one of many front ends to users. When USD flows from Terra over to Ethereum, over to Solana, to Polygon, and then to Avalanche, it retains the same representation on Avalanche that USD flowing from Terra to Avalanche directly or through any other part in the ecosystem would retain. So, it's a truly cross chain native asset. It doesn't fracture liquidity, it funges seamlessly, and it allows a lot of cool composition. So, if you look at something now like the resultant second order effects of this, it's this theme that we've been calling XDAPS, right? So, cross chain DAPS. And we've seen kind of the first marquee deployment of one of these apps in the form of XAnchor, which is deployed on the Avalanche chain now, right? And anchor is just a light set of endpoints that's deployed on, on Avalanche and all that does is it lets you kind of hit some functions that then relay assets and or messages bundled or separately over back to the Terra blockchain and then trigger state transitions on the Terra site, right? So anchor contracts don't need to be deployed to every chain. You don't need to replicate state everywhere. You don't need to state synchronized continuously, but you allow for outposts and communications on different chains to then communicate back to the home chain using messages and assets. And... Now, the USD that's in the X asset standard can be deployed to X anchors everywhere. And it's a much faster, much more robust scaling strategy that has far less communication over it.
0: Let's dig into this a little bit on like a technical level, too. So when you're talking about X dApps or cross-chain dApps that are, are, are communicating via wormhole, you're inherently talking about fractured state across multiple L1s or L2. It's unavoidable when you're... Anything cross-chain is inherently working under a fractured state model. How fast does that time synchronization need to be for developers to actually deploy something like an AMM uh, or a club cross-chain and actually maintain like price parity and and appropriate liquidity between them?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up. So there's a few different programming models for how cross-chain dApps works, right? One is... You try to state-synchronize as aggressively as possible. You keep sending messages back and forth. You have allowances, risk limits, tolerances that allow your apps to communicate. And the other is this X dapps framework where state only lives on one chain and you allow people from other chains to then interact with it. Now, of course, that also comes with its own downsides, right? If you look at something like a club um, and you're trying to trigger uh, a cross-chain swap using the club from another chain, you are inherently incurring the latency of the two two blockchain transactions, right? And the finality assumptions that, that that you want to kind of work with. There, the more stateful your application becomes, obviously, the more latency and risk constraints you have to think through. With something like a lending protocol or like a you know cross chain anchor things like that, they are less stateful than something like an order book. Where order book is probably the most stateful you can get right in the in, in the spectrum of applications. And so, any cross chain swap design inherently has to have some additional liquidity baked in. That's like fundamental right? You can ask people to take risk on your behalf. You can have the protocol take risk on your behalf, but that risk exists. There's a lot of ways to program around it and create better user experiences. But fundamentally, that's a real problem and somebody has to be compensated for that risk.
0: For the XDAP framework, are you looking to actually be able to offload compute to the wormhole level there? Or is it really just like the natural extension of this seems to be that eventually there's some sort of state storage on wormhole that DApps are able to actually access and leverage with some if functionally sidechain compute resourcing. Are, are you guys thinking about that as well?
1: Yeah, the fundamental cross chain thesis is that there are going to be independent, specialized compute environments that attract their own communities, their own audiences, and their own apps. And Wormhole is a way for folks to leverage state that results from these heterogeneous environments and compute that's available on these environments to compose, right? And you can cut that in a bil- in million different ways. You can leverage Solana as your state execution machine. You can leverage Terra as your stablecoin asset layer, and you can represent this third thing as an NFT thing, or you can bundle them all in. But the global vision itself right now with, with all the generic message capabilities that are out there, in the near-term roadmap, doesn't need to build an execution layer of its own. It can naturally extend to it. I think you're definitely kind of pointing to something that's that's relevant. But I, I don't know if that's the worst hanging fruit given... The capacities that exist in current blockchain compute environment. The vision, of course, is to make people Web3 users rather than blockchain users or L1 users. You, you basically want to deploy resources to the most relevant execution environment with the right community that's creating the right apps and then expose that to at a higher order to consumers. Would,
0: would you describe Wormhole as a layer zero? I'm a little bit old
1: school. I think of like layer zeros as like networking protocols and like, you know, backbone, internet backbones and things like that. Um, I think it is maybe a useful analogy for kind of blockchain audiences given how we've very canonically come to use the word L1. So I don't have an allergic reaction to it, but it's not my first word of choice. What would your first word of choice be? Interoperability protocol. I'm not that creative. Yeah. <laughs> <It's>, yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Wormhole is also supporting wrapped NFTs, which is kind of an interesting concept. I, I think most people don't think of NFTs as something that's been bridged. And quite frankly, the numbers on wormhole on bridge NFTs are, are, are quite low compared to the success as an asset bridge or a messaging bridge. What was the original idea of using wrapped NFTs? And why do you think it hasn't caught on as much yet?
1: I think caution NFTs as a story are just beginning to play out. So that's about 16, 1700 on the on the wrap took on the on the NFT bridge itself. And again, mm-hmm. NFTs are also cross-chain fungible and composable across environments. They are also part of the X asset framework. And so, X assets can mean anything. It can be in remaining rebasing assets like STE. It can be in NFTs. It can be in fungible assets. It can mean anything else, right? The NFT story started to play out as a result of new all-tell ones trying to access marketplaces that supported one or the other chain, right? And so you get to access new audiences, you get to create experiences with different communities, you get to access different user bases, but we're seeing the experiences get a lot richer. So you see something like Mobland come out recently, they got featured on on Bloomberg for new cross-chain staking program, where they have in-game elements that kind of change based on cross-chain NFT staking, There are different experiences with different communities. And much like the asset bridge has that kind of globalization and cross-pollination of commercial kind of elements, cross-chain NFTs are globalization kind of culture, right? And, and, and incorporating a lot of those elements across games that live on Solana, that live on Terra, that live on other environments and just creating those kind of richer experiences. And so uh, we're seeing people, mint NFTs on one chain, come to Solana, fractionalize them, trade them, put them back in, move them over to OpenSea on Ethereum. There's all kind of interesting use case patterns. And so it's definitely been less aggressively adopted than the explosive token bridge or the other generic message applications. But there are still 16 1,700 NFTs. There are a lot of teams using it for cool and innovative stuff that just, we just kind of creep up out of the woodworks every, every sometime. So.
0: Do you think that's social? Do you think that's technological? Do you think that's just like the ecosystem hasn't matured enough? Like, I, I think I'm, I'm surprised how much, um, well, I guess surprise is maybe the wrong term. People have a lot of emotional attachment to an NFT in the same way they don't have an emotional attachment to a Bitcoin. They they may have emotional attachment to the concept of the Bitcoin, but like, you know, I would be upset if I lost my particular DGN ape, even if I got a different one for the exact same value. Do you think that factors in at all to how people view the concept of wrapping an NFT, that it somehow weakens the authenticity?
1: I think for a lot of purists, it does. I think it was just so early, right? Um, f- for the most part, people aren't even going to realize that the, the large end of this consumer is like buying these things on NBA Top Shot or Air or any of these other platforms it's something on the app for them. And eventually it's going to be abstracted away as withdraw to ETH, withdraw to Solana, withdraw to wallet, connect wallet. And it's going to be like kind of as simple as that. Um, and so, yeah, we're always going to have purest stakes, but I think that's going to remain within our, our little echo chamber
0: here. For Jump Crypto in general, h- how do you view NFTs? Is it, there are obviously firms now that are dabbling in market making and NFTs. Is that something that you've, you've looked at? Um, and if not, what was the decision not to enter that space yet?
1: It just doesn't trade a lot, <laughs> so we're looking at like trading opportunities. You're looking about margins. You're looking about what predictive alpha you can have, like what the edge you can have on a trade is, and then how many times you can apply that edge. Right? It's kind of just it's as simple as that. And even if you can get a 30% margin on something that trades hundred million dollars, like a, a, a week month, I mean, I'm pulling numbers out of my ass now. But like, if you have a low volume class, even if it has slightly higher edge and it is harder to predict and more dimensional, this is not a good resourcing decision. So. As that evolves and changes, we will continue to stay on top of it. And my NFTs are trading billions of, and tens of billions of dollars every day and have really interesting data sets. So I'm sure we'll be trading them.
0: So if it, if the market 100 x in size, you wouldn't be opposed to it. it. It's just the sizing opportunity issue right now. If we're trading, you we can't be religious, man.
1: <laughs> it's, it's, about, it's about identifying if there's opportunity and executing on it if there is. So,
0: so looking at... Uh, wormhole. One of the things I do want to touch on is the wormhole hack and exploit that happened a little while ago. It was one of the larger bridge hacks at the time. It was e- eclipsed a few weeks later by an even larger hack of another bridge, also targeting stolen ETH. Uh, in this process, I'm sure that uh, activities and projects that Jump has been involved in have had larger losses of of money or similar volumes of money, just based on the area you operate in. But but this is a one that inherently to the nature of Web3 is very public. How was that like internally, knowing that your core contributor to a project that suffered this kind of exploit, and also that failure is now a public failure, as opposed to maybe where it would have been a private failure before?
1: Building is hard. Building in the open is even harder. And building where in a decentralized open space where there's a large network of participants, consumers, uh, affected people, is the stakes we're playing in, right? That's, that's, that's the stakes that every DeFi application, that every L1, that every bridge, uh, and that everything in Web3 that aims to do something meaningful inherently adopts and, and, and has to has to learn to deal with. The hack was big punch in the gut, obviously a big financial loss as well. The, the fundamental nature of smart contracts is that the code and code can have bugs, right? And this exploit was kind of deep, deep, deep down in the stack, you know, in, in kind of like a Solana instruction verification account check that was missing. The auditors missed it. Our team that has independently been one of the biggest bug bounty finders in the space missed. And code base had the opportunity to be out in the wild for seven months, kind of, you know, had on unchecked. The day of the hack, of course, really, really rough. Jump is not used to being a public institution. So this was, like you said, a very public kind of fallout in nature. I can't possibly have been prouder of the way the team reacted to this to, the, to this incident. We kind of identified it within short course of it happening. We pulled the meeting room together, identified the bug, fixed up a patch, managed to coordinate the Guardian network to bring it up, bring it down, announced our intent to refill the gaping $320 million hole within an hour of the incident being being reported on, and brought the bridge back up within 18 hours to end to end. Building bridges and building cross-chain is very, very hard. And and that's where, you know, the, the reward for it building it right is even harder. You don't you don't make $320 million decisions very lightly. And this should hopefully signify to you how much conviction and faith we have in the code base in bringing it back up in 18 hours. It should tell you about, you know, where we think this this whole space is going and where wormhole is going and where interoperability is going and what a core piece of infrastructure in that realm would mean. Yeah, security continues to be extremely, extremely top of mind. We have a $10 million bug bounty. We have an internal red team that's basically thinking about breaking wormhole and our key projects every day. We have multiple audit from and retainer with lots of audits going on, pretty intense security review practices, all of which can be you know, found publicly online. And I'm incredibly confident that you know WOMO has come out much stronger from this incident. The team has come out kicking and that you know, we're, we're building one of the
0: best and most trusted interop solutions out there. So looking across the ecosystem, let's say over the next 12 to 18 months, what are you personally most excited for? And, and what keeps you up at night? What do you still have worry around? I'm
1: looking forward to a whole bunch of things. So definitely very excited about all the advancements that we're seeing in the succinct proof and zero knowledge space. Like that stuff is just awesome. It's, it's magic. And like, I'm, I'm just so excited to see all the things that that's going to unlock for us. There's a lot of interesting problems in the hardware acceleration space that need to be made to make that possible. There's a lot of problems algorithmically that are kind of being uncovered there. And, you know, I think hopefully this conversation has lent on that we have a big infrastructural mindset. When I say streets and sanitation, you know, that's kind of what we think about every day. That's what we're looking forward to and, you know, on on what we can build to and contribute to that.
0: You said something I got to I got to get a little more info. You said specific hardware to accelerate certain kinds of applications. The only place we've really seen this so far across the entire crypto landscape is ASICs for Bitcoin mining. You see GPU mining optimization, but again, like at, nowadays, I wouldn't necessarily even call GPU specialized hardware. It's really commodity hardware at this point that's just deployed for a specific application. When you're looking at the space, where are you seeing actually custom silicon or FPGAs becoming something that it makes sense to deploy?
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely for 0 knowledge provers, right? So like proof verification times have compressed a lot to the point where, you know, it's it's pretty feasible on most blockchain environments today. but. Proving itself is still super, super resource intensive. That's where, like, you know, there's a lot of like simple math operations that can be encoded into silicon and and, and into FPGAs or ASICs to speed up the process significantly. And that's where we're seeing a lot of adoption. There's there's already a lot of people working on this on hardware acceleration using FPGAs, maybe even ASICs on zero knowledge provers. It's a little bit of like, you know, it's tough to say when the right time is because. Like there's new changes like algorithmically um coming out all the time with the new advances in new papers and so when you spend a whole bunch of time just optimizing fast fourier transforms um and then the next paper makes fast Fourier transforms not relevant like it's 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 tough to make like a decision on when the right time is, but I know there's a lot of work already going on into it, and it's a space that we're very familiar with and that we' are, that we are also excited about, and we're we'll seeing mostly positive stuff on the regulatory side as of recently, you know I think. There's a lot of good faith engagement from regulators around the world on uh, setting frameworks and policies for how kind of all this stuff gets put into place. I don't think we've seen some outside of maybe China. We haven't seen anything very aggressively on cutting off innovation. We even saw India now finally, finally starting to open up. And so I feel more optimistic about the regulatory landscape than I did 12 months ago. There's, there's like you know we need we need a new influx of builders to keep coming and building cool experiences and leveraging this technology. But we're seeing that happen. We need capital being continued to commit to the space, but we're seeing that happen.
0: The inverse of that question: What are you most concerned about on a macro level for the space still?
1: Asset pricing is, of course, highly dependent on macro environment, and that is unrelated to crypto, right? And it's just like it's its own thing. And so we'll see price movements on a different time scale. And if you see a very A very sustained global macro depressed environment then we're going to see less capital less builders and less momentum in the space um and i think that's possibly that's probably the biggest overhang we have today.
0: in the long run we're all dead
1: in the long run we're all dead that's right let's let's keep building yes
0: (laughs) (laughs) so one kind of last question here i think if you rerun the clock maybe three or four years the prevailing wisdom in this space was not that traditional financial institutions were going to expand their vision and embrace blockchain. And we'd call it Web3 at the end of the day. And you'd have Twitter profile pictures of NFTs. You'd have jump trading, building software that's open source for a decentralized environment. And we really have seen that that is what was, what was originally pitched as a, a forked parallel path of economic development it's a little little bit more twisty, curvy than we thought it was going to be. And there's a lot more integration with traditional companies. As crypto has a thesis about it, that it's moving more consumer, right? That you, uh, across the spectrum, you see more normies getting into crypto in one way or another. Does the existing market of specifically the United States and Europe, where you see very few competitors within an ecosystem. There's basically only two phone companies. There's basically only three cell phone companies. There's basically only four internet provider companies. Like across the spectrum, you see very non-competitive markets. When you look at the consumer landscape of the United States, do you imagine that we're going to see similar patterns rolling out there as we saw in the financial industry, or we really are going to go back to that idea of a parallel execution model?
1: Yeah, um, I'll strongly state that I don't hold a heretical view of um, you know this kind of being a completely forked off parallel path that has no relevance to anything that we do today. I think it's an amazing technological innovation that gives us tools to coordinate resources in an untrusted environment, and that's unlocking a lot of magic. But that, again, bleeds in with the rest of the real world, which is also you know big and <laughs> has its own dramatic paces of innovation and with a whole bunch of other stuff going on. I think... One of the most exciting things has been kind of the global equalizer that crypto can serve to be. Right? Yesterday, we saw Polygon come out with an integration with Stripe. And these are you know three kids from India that had no early supporting or backing that kind of bootstrap the network on their own and are now competing on a very, very competitive landscape with people from every single part of the world that are very well-resourced, competent teams. Right? We see Doe coming from Korea. We see teams from Australia and New Zealand. But with the color guys, we see people from Berlin and the US and everybody competing on the same, not only the same similar consumer markets, but also in the same capital markets. And there are, you know, network effects that accrue, but not cannibalistic network effects that accrue. That makes me very excited about where the space is going overall. When we talk about integration points itself, it's going to largely depend on by vertical, right? And that's like an unsatisfactory answer, but like If you're talking about like financial markets, crypto is already integrated heavily into the financial markets with 15 excellent international venues that are competing, right? So we already have a fractured environment. This is before the Nasdaq, the CME groups, ICE have made their moves in the space. And they're clearly not going to be monopolies in crypto, obviously, right? If you look at something like a telco and interactions with like cell networks, Still remains to be seen whether like decentralized constructions of those kinds of things can be competitive. I mean, like building telcos and stuff has like such strong network effects and so many economies of scale. And it's unclear whether a web three means of accruing that value to a decentralized organization has the ability to accrue the similar kind of network effects. And so remains to be seen, but I'm excited to see it play out.
0: I always enjoy getting to pick your brain about Uh, where these technologies are going and, and the intersection of a very traditional financial world with this new global system that we've all been building. But thank you so much for joining us for spending some time digging into this stuff. Thanks a lot for having me on Austin. This was super fun. And as always, love chatting. So yeah, we'll see you again soon. Thanks.